0: We started doing more and more deals in San Diego. We did about 50 deals in San Diego over the first 10 years. And the, the word of mouth when people tell their friends and family about something that they're very happy and, and passionate about grows very quickly. So sure. now, 32 years later, we've got 2,400 partners. We raise somewhere between 400 and 800 million a year. And we're usually doing somewhere between a billion and two billion in property acquisitions every year. Welcome to
1: the Rich Summers Report, where we talk real estate, business, and wealth building all while keeping it real. No fluff, no BS. I hope that you enjoy the show. All right, guys, welcome to another episode of The Report. Today, we are back in the studio here in downtown San Diego, and I'm super excited because I got the biggest guest that we've had on thus far. He owns 28,000 multifamily apartment units, $10.5 billion of real estate. I got Jeff Gleamerman. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, likewise, man. I'm excited to uh, connect and and dive into this conversation. Um, I know Jaden in our Boutique Hotel uh, Investing Mastermind introduced us. I know you guys are friends and and you guys golf together. Great, great friend and really happy he connected us. Yeah, shout out Jaden. Uh, we love Jaden. But uh, yeah, man, so just to start, you know, why don't you give us an overview of kind of what you guys own today, what kind of markets you're invested in, and what, what kind of assets you guys primarily uh, own? Sounds good. So again, Jeff Gleiberman, president of MG Properties. We own
0: and manage apartment communities in six states on the western part of the United States. All these apartments are have, were previously existing apartments. We don't do any ground-up development So we focus just on existing apartments, either core plus investments that are 10 years or newer, or value add deals that are somewhere between 10 and 30 years old. And um, at the business today, we we have the 28,000 units, as you mentioned, we are fully vertically integrated. So we have in-house property management, asset management, and construction management. And we have about 880
1: total employees with 120 in the corporate office. That is a massive team there. And so you said six states in the western part of the country. What what six states are those? We
0: focus on the major metros. So we want to be in cities that have a lot of job growth. And then we want to be in specific submarkets that don't have a lot of new competition coming. So that's been kind of a winning recipe for us. We are in Denver, Seattle,
1: Portland, all over California, Las Vegas, Phoenix, and Reno. Okay. So with some of those markets are a little bit different, right? So you got California, um, a lot of bureaucracy, red tape, um, and a high barrier to entry in terms of new builds and, and new construction. Um, but then you, you mentioned Phoenix, where Phoenix has a ton of new supply, um, a little bit less bureaucracy and a little bit more business friendly. Um, and then you mentioned Reno as well. Um, so talk a, l- a little bit about that. And I also noticed you said you guys are buying the Class A stuff, 10 years, 10 years and newer, but also... 10 to 30 years old value add. So it sounds like you guys have a, a wide range in terms of search criteria. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Is, that. is that the same investor group that's investing in both of those? Um, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so talking about geography
0: first, the diversification is so important. So California, as you mentioned, extremely hard to develop. So there's not going to be as much supply coming. And we like that about it. We want to be buying in California. We've had a lot of success but extremely hard to manage, very, very renter friendly, um, very, very hard during COVID with evictions and delinquencies. And then there's more business friendly states like Nevada and Arizona, where you're going to have a lot more development, which is going to be a headwind, but you're going to have a lot more job growth, a lot of people moving there. So just having that diversification in your portfolio is really important to us and to our partners. It is the same group of limited partners. And, And every deal we structure as a syndication where We're the general partner. And then we get a group of limited partners to invest with us. And it's the same group. And they're also trying to diversify and make their um, portfolio um, with us different. So by going into different areas, going into different deals, maybe a value add deal, maybe one a core plus deal. But the main focus for our partners is cash flow. So we are looking for deals that have good yearly cash on cash return. And with some of the tax advantages of real estate investing, all the cash flow will be tax deferred during the
1: hold period. Got it. And even if you, are you guys typically doing five-year holds or 10-year holds? Closer to 10 years. Closer to yeah, 10.
0: Yeah. So on average, we, we've held properties for about seven to eight years. We've sold a hundred properties in our history and seven to eight has been the average hold. Over the last six to seven years, interest rates got so low and attractive. We were locking in 10-year fixed financing with the plan to hold properties for that full 10-year duration. Now that the interest rates have shot up so dramatically quickly, now we're going back down closer to the seven-year hold, maybe even closer to a five-year hold. So depending a little bit on the market,
1: it it depends on the the business strategy, but that seven to 10 years has been our average. And and why is that with the rate environment being higher today, that you guys are shortening your hold period? We
0: tend to follow the um, Chatham forward curve, which predicts the future interest rates. And you know, no one's ever right, but most people think that interest rates are going to be lower in the next five to 10 years. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to lock in an interest rate for too long that is too high. But then again, we don't want to go variable in case it goes the other way and it keeps going up. We want to lock in that safety, that security, which is the most important thing to us. Downside protection, wealth protection is our, is our number one goal. And we've never lost any investor's principle on any
1: deal in our history in over 32 years. So there was about a 10-year run from, I want to say, 2011, 2012, to about 2021, where we were in a compressing cap rate environment. And the difference between cap rates on C-class, B-class, and A-class in 2019, 2020, 2021 became very, very tight to almost where the cap rates based on uh, class were on top of each other. Meaning, you know, the cap rate... Back in like let's say 2012 for a C class, and let's just say a given market was an eight cap. An A class in that same market would be like a let's say a four cap. But in 2020, 21, it would be like a four cap for a C, right? Especially the value add stuff. People are paying all this crazy money for C class value add, 1960s, 1970s product. And you could buy that same A class in that same market for three caps. So a lot of a lot of smart money started buying the A class. Now obviously with the rate environment we saw a lot of people get caught with the floating rate debt um, early 2020 early 2021 uh, myself included we had a couple of deals with the floating rate debt and the rates went through the roof and so we had a refi into fixed debt uh, earlier this year. Are you guys still seeing this this cap rate environment to where it makes sense to buy the class A? because of the compressed cap rates and the C-class stuff and the older products.
0: The trend that you just mentioned was was a very, very interesting trend to watch. And it it couldn't be more true. Every cap rate was the same, no matter when the property was built, what the location was. And we started focusing on newer properties, better location. And today we're really seeing those cap rates change. So um, 70s built property in a worse location is going to be a good... 2% higher on the cap rate um, than what we're seeing today. So if there were deals that were for sale, there's not a lot of sellers today. It's a very, very low transaction market. But if there were deals for sale in in the appropriate cap rate level, we would definitely purchase it. But right now, we're only seeing sales from new developers that are their construction loans coming due and they're being forced to sell or large funds. These funds are having a lot of redemptions. So they need to sell for liquidity reasons. So right now, it's hard to see exactly um, where the sales are, because um, there's not that many sellers. But you also mentioned variable rate debt, which we don't do. We only do long-term fixed financing. But a lot of people put on variable rate debt. Those rate caps are going to be coming up in the next year or two. And there's going to be a lot of pressure to sale, sell. So. So we will be seeing a lot of opportunities
1: over the next year or two. Yeah. Um, speaking of the, the rate caps uh, coming due uh, and a lot of these you know, operators that got in the floating rate debt, you know, I guess the, one of the reasons a lot of people did it is because they had the 1% prepayment, right? And so if you bought a deal that had a lot of value at potential and you felt, hey, we're going to significantly grow the value of this asset over the next 18 to 24 months, we can refi or sell and only have the one percent prepay, where the yield maintenance um, and the step down, that stuff is a little bit more expensive. And so you're seeing a lot of operators right now with the expensive, um, you know, rates, make having to make a, a decision: do you refi right now into more expensive fixed rate debt, or do you just kind of hold on and hope that the rates go back down? Because you refi into more expensive debt right now with yield maintenance, and then the rates go back down over the next year to two. Well, now you're in another situation. So what, what would you do for if you were one of those operators?
0: Yeah, since we really focus on that fixed rate debt, we haven't looked too closely into the variable rate debt. But with the way the market's going, um, with some of the scenarios you just mentioned, it does seem like putting fixed rate debt on would be a smart move just because taking more risk now, keeping that variable rate debt on your deal, if if the rates continue to go up, you're going to be put in a worse position. These rate caps are going to get more expensive. So at least cutting it...
1: Stopping the bleeding.
0: Yeah, exactly. Stopping the bleeding right now would would seem to make sense. just depends a lot on the deal, the market, where the values are. In general, we've seen a value decrease of about 10 to 20% on average on total purchase price on, on kind of the institutional multifamily that we look at. So if you over leveraged and you had a really high leverage loan... It might, at some time, you got to go negotiate with your lender, need to work out a plan with them, or at worst case scenario, lose the property, which obviously no one wants to see.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely an, an interesting time that, that we're in right now. Um, and I also find it interesting that you said the sellers right now that are selling are typically the new developers that have maturing construction loans. Um, and so that's all new product. And then what was the second group that's selling? The second main group has been large
0: institutional funds that have redemptions. So when people are redeeming out of people's funds, they need to be paid out and they need money for that. And so they have to sell real estate to pay out redemptions. And we are so lucky to be in multifamily. It is still performing well. Fundamentals are great. There's a lot of other product types that are not doing well, including office, which you know everyone knows is, is extremely underwater, and retail and other ones as well. So these funds are selling their better performing, more liquid assets, which tend to be multifamily. So we just purchased a deal from Clarion, big fund manager up in Fremont, which is northern California. They purchased it in 2018 for $110 million. It rode the market a lot higher than that. And we just got it for $89 million. So it was a 20% discount to what they paid a low replacement cost, one of the highest cap rates we've seen in Northern California for over 20 years and feel really good about the seven year loan that we put on there as well. So, um, we're seeing some good fund opportunities. We're seeing some good merchant build opportunities and, and definitely, um, finding deals. Just wish there was a little bit more. There's it's still very low transactions.
1: Transactions are down about 80% year over year. Yeah. Um, how important is it for you guys when you guys go into these deals, whether it's a seven-year or a 10-year hold, how much are, how important is it for you guys on the front end to to really understand what who you're going to exit to and what that buyer is going to look like? Having the biggest exit
0: buyer pool, obviously, is going to create the bidding activity, get mm-hmm. you your best price. So that comes down to location is, is the main thing we're looking for. So we're really looking for these sub-markets that are going to be Um, have that job growth, have those schools, have the retail, the easy access to freeways, big, big list of things. And we do want to have different exit plans. The exit plans are kind of hard to plan because you don't know which REITs, which institutions, which private buyers, 1031 exchange money is going to be at the table then. But as long as we're focused on the actual real estate, which is the location, how it's built, then we can focus on upgrading adding value managing correctly
1: then we, we should have a good opportunity to sell to m- multiple different buyers yeah that makes a lot of sense i always say like you know you can you can renovate a property but you cannot renovate the location you know sure. and so yeah um obviously that's one of the things that's you know drives a lot of the appreciation long term with a lot of these deals and um you know i feel like a lot of the deals that i've done have been value add deals where there's very very little cash flow but we create a ton of equity, right? And so whether it's a cash out refi or a sale, that's where we make a lot of our pop. Um, And, you know, with how low cap rates were on the multifamily side, I feel like it it makes a lot of sense. But I also say from a risk adjusted return basis, multifamily is the safest asset class out there. There's never going to be a replacement for two things, a place for people to sleep and a place for people to store their belongings. And so you can argue multifamily is evergreen. Um, And as a function of that, You know, I believe multifamily and mobile home parks are the only agency loans that you can get non-recourse. And so moving forward, I mean, obviously, we're in a high interest rate environment right now. The Fed has all the control. What do you forecast um, in terms of rates moving uh, and where they're going to navigate over the next 12 to 24 months?
0: Yeah, it's been a very crazy um, rate market. That's for sure. We bought a a very large 500-unit deal in the beginning of twenty-two. And we got a 3% seven-year loan on it. And then interest rates went up a point and a half that year to 4.5% where they kind of started this year. And now they're in the low sixes. So we've seen interest rates double in about two years, which has just been absolutely crazy. So we're kind of following the inflation trends, the market, and we think that there's going to be one more rate increase as most of the market does. It's going to stabilize over the next year, and then towards the end of next year, we'll start to see the first decrease. And it's going to be a slow decrease process from there, but we should be at reasonable interest rate levels in about two to three years.
1: Okay. So you're thinking it's going to take at least another 12 months before we see any sort of rate cut, even with the election year coming up? Yep. Okay. Okay. Um, I was just out in Houston uh, interviewing Robert Martinez, the apartment rock star. He just had a a $51 million loan foreclosed on that he bought early 22 on fixed rate debt. And uh, this is one of the early ones that I've heard of. Do you foresee a lot of these operators that got in the floating rate debt? They didn't increase their NOI enough to uh, refi into fixed debt. Do you see a lot more of these deals uh, coming down the pipeline? If you love real estate investing, passive income, and tax benefits, but don't have the time, my company, Summers Capital, is buying boutique hotels right now. We source the deals, we renovate the properties, and we even handle all the day-to-day management, making it truly hands-off for our investors. If you want to learn more to see if we can help you, visit SummersCapital.com invest to book a call with our team. Again, that's SummersCapital.com invest. Now back to the show. We have actually been surprised.
0: We haven't seen more yet. So I, I very very little foreclosures we've heard of or seen, but they're coming. It has to come. Just it's it's a numbers game, and just looking at the numbers, it's 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 going to have to come, and that's where we're going to start to see a lot of opportunity. It depends on how many other buyers there are, and there's a lot of capital raised for multifamily. So um, depending on how many bids these deals get, it will determine how good the deals are. But there is going to be a lot of opportunities for. Good multifamily purchases over the next few years.
1: Yeah, you no, know, it's going to be uh, definitely an in, in interesting to see how this plays out. Um, but at the same token, we're seeing um, an opportunity, and we're seeing capital go and address these gaps in the marketplace. Um, I've heard of uh, some funds that are going to go basically uh, help out operators that are in need. It's not going to be cheap cost of capital. Uh, it's going to be expensive, um, but they're probably they, maybe they're going to want some equity, but. Uh, they might be there to save a lot of these operators that are in need of some capital. Um, have you heard a lot of those players that are entering the marketplace?
0: Yeah, we are seeing a lot of bidders. And and so it's not an amazing time to sell right now. And uh, most people know that. There are unique situations and certain buyers that need certain deals for certain reasons. So we will end up selling three deals this year. Each one kind of a unique situation where... Either someone owned the property next door and wants to combine it with their property. They are in a 1031 exchange and need to get the money placed. And we can also use this time now to kind of clean up our portfolio a little bit too. We're selling our, our oldest, smallest deal right now. Going to trade that into something a little bit newer. So we're definitely seeing money being raised, but it's a difficult equity market right now. So not a ton of institutional, if any institutional purchases being done. And then also, even on the private side, it's it's definitely hard for most groups to raise equity right now.
1: Yeah, um, you mentioned it's not a great time to sell right now for for obvious reasons. How come you're selling those three and four deals? One was an off-market transaction where
0: there was a big 1031 exchange, and they were paying previous pricing. So you know, there's there's if you get the right price, it's, it makes sense. Then the one I mentioned about selling our oldest, smallest deal to move it into something a little bit newer, better location. And then the last one was, um, we have a deal that was townhomes, big three and four bedroom units, and a local owner in the same area has a smaller deal with smaller units. They wanted to combine those two together, so they're paying um, a a really good price. Yeah, So if we can sell for a premium Mm -hmm. and then buy for a discount, we would exchange into that all day. Mm -hmm. I'm curious. Your oldest and smallest deal. How how big is it, and um, in what year? It was built in the mid 1960s in Pomona,
1: and it's 130 units. Gotcha. I was going to say, I, I bet your your smallest deal is bigger than my largest deal. It's close. It was really close. the biggest one is 150, so it's close. Yeah. Uh, Pono, Poma, Pomona, California. Yeah, right here in like Ontario area. Correct. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Just East LA, right there on the 10, on your way to Ontario. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, with, with the rate environment where it's at, um, we're not, obviously you're saying we're seeing a a discount in cap rates relative to where it was a year and a half ago. But in order for activity to really pick up, we're going to need to see cap rates shift to the same level that the interest rates have shifted. Um, do we see that happen over the next six to 12 months before we start to see these cuts? Or do you think it's going to be the cuts that ultimately, uh, leads to more activity in the, in the marketplace?
0: We and I would estimate that it's going to be the rate cuts that's going to lead to more activity. For cap rates to increase all the way to the 6 to 7% range where rates are today, these sellers would have to take too much of a discount. So with how good the fundamentals are in the market, with how well these pro- properties are performing and cash flowing, if you don't need to sell, wait till interest rates come back down, wait till cap rates come back down. But we saw cap rates get into the threes there. And I'm sure you did too. And now they're up in the upper fours, lower fives. So I don't think they're going to go much higher. They will go a little bit higher. So, you know, cap rates will increase. Prices will go down for the next year-ish. And then when those
1: cuts start happening, then we're going to see a big reversion. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting to kind of see how it plays out. Um, And so when you say, you know, cap rates right now are in the fours and fives, Um, How much of a spread are you seeing in terms of cap rates in Reno versus cap rates in Phoenix or even some of these higher growth markets in California? We
0: are seeing about a 50 basis point spread from the coastal markets, which tend to have the lower cap rates. So the Seattle, Portland, California to the desert markets, which seem to have the higher cap rates. So about 50 basis points in cap rate spread. You, You mentioned that time when everything was becoming about the same cap rate. Mm -hmm. And there was a time when cap rates actually got lower in the desert markets there, which we hadn't seen for 30, we never saw before. Why was that? It was a very aggressive underwriting time and people were seeing these large job growths, tons of people moving to Mm -hmm. Las Vegas, Phoenix, Reno, and they were paying very, very low cap rates with the hope of high rent growth.
1: Yeah. I mean, there was a time where, where Phoenix annualized rent growth was around 10%, wasn't it?
0: Even higher, actually. Even yeah. Higher. yeah we, saw we, saw 13. Two, we saw two years like nothing we'd ever seen before. Yeah. Upper teens, mm. two years in a row in Phoenix. We were underwriting three to 4%. So we were getting five, six years of rent growth in one year and
1: just not sustainable. Mm-hmm. I wonder, were there groups, like more aggressive groups that were winning a lot of these deals? Because I, I remember in 21, when the rates were super, super cheap, uh, and the demand just really was through the roof. Um, you know, there was, I remember, you know, underwriting deals, uh, anything that was broker-listed with a decent pricing guidance, if it had a good location. I remember, you know, there would be, these brokers would tell me there'd be 40, 50 property tours, and there would be 25, 30 offers for almost all of these deals and I would circle back to see like what they traded for. And it's like these outrageous numbers that didn't even make sense from an underwriting standpoint. So I always like these groups that were being awarded those deals, I mean, how aggressive were they getting with their rent growth assumptions and maybe exit cap rate assumptions as well?
0: Yeah, it was a very aggressive time in the market. There was tons of new companies entering. Um, we saw more bidding activity on deals than we'd ever seen before. It was a function of extremely strong market performance from years of underdevelopment in both single-family and multifamily development, and then also just unbelievably low interest rates. So on our current portfolio right now, 100 properties, the average in-place 10-year loan is 3.65. And so that would be over 6% today. And we, we were getting some 10-year loans in the twos with our lowest one being 238 you can almost mm-hmm. make any deal work if you're getting a two point three
1: eight
0: loan. So it was just And that was free fixed debt.
1: That wasn't floating. Oh, yeah. Wow. Fixed
0: ten year IO. Um, just really, really unbelievable it's debt. Free, it's free money. Yeah. So you so at the time, if you were putting on that type of debt, you, you could make the deals work and you can make the cash flow work. So they still could be cash flowing well. If you did the variable rate debt, then that's when there's gonna be a lot of issues and a lot of workouts that are going to have to happen. Yeah. What's the biggest deal you guys have ever ever done? In terms of purchase price, the biggest deal is $330 million. Our average deal size that we see is usually between 80 and 100 million, which is about a 270 unit community in the markets that we look at. Since we do our own self-management, really getting above that 200 units threshold um, helps for economies of scale, for saving on expenses. So we're really targeting 200 plus units. Our biggest property is over 700 units.
1: Now, with you guys self-managing, do you guys have a preference in terms of the, the high end of unit count? Like, do you guys not want to get over a certain unit count? The bigger, the better. The so, bigger, the yeah, better. So yeah. there's no cap at all.
0: No, they didn't build many properties over 500 units just because mm-hmm. of land and the way developers were building over the last... 40, 50 years. So very hard to find properties over 500 units, but really the bigger, the more efficient.
1: How many units was the $330 million acquisition? That one was
0: 450 units. It was in San Jose. So it was a big purchase price because the land is so expensive there. And it's such an infill good location with Silicon Valley right down the street, Mm. tons of tech jobs. We see a big difference in price per unit in California compared to a Phoenix, just as an example. So where we're in, sitting in beautiful San Diego right now, and there were deals trading seven, eight hundred thousand a unit for multifamily in San Diego, mm-hmm. where you go out to the desert and the most you, you would have seen is four, five hundred thousand a unit just because of land
1: costs, permit costs, and, and really expenses. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I've also noticed that, like, just from market to market, um, you know, some markets just have a high density of smaller apartment buildings um and some markets have a higher density of just larger apartment buildings and not a lot of smaller stuff um why is that in your in your imagination like for example if you go to Cincinnati there are so many properties that are like 16 20 units and under um but then you go to the, some of these other markets and you don't see much I and mean, why why is that
0: the history probably of the land the developers and just what went on in the real estate and in, in each individual market kind of looking at San Diego since we're sitting here right now and we got North Park and Hillcrest and and areas that have a lot of these 10 to 20 unit deals that were built by smaller developers over the years. And then we can go out to Phoenix where there is a lot more land, a lot bigger developers, and you're seeing much, much larger properties. And on average, there's probably 10 to 20 sales of apartments that are 100 units or more in San Diego every year where you'd go out to a Phoenix and in the peak you were seeing a hundred plus transactions of a hundred units or more apartments. So there's just, it's just a little bit of the history of the market and how the developers got in.
1: Yeah. Um, That makes a lot of sense. And so would you say because there's not a ton of larger assets here in San Diego, are you guys not focused here?
0: No, there's, and then over the years and more recently, there's definitely been a lot more, but still a lot less transactions than a Phoenix. So, very, very difficult to purchase in San Diego. It's been one of our best markets, probably our number one best market over the last 30 plus years. We'd love to buy more
1: here, but very, very little transaction volume. A lot of multifamily operators made a ton of um, you know, money over the last 12 years. If there was one mistake that you guys made over the last 12 years, what would it be? So as a kind of de-risking strategy, we have
0: always put on fixed rate Debt. And now that looks amazing and we feel very good about it. But for 30 plus years, we were wrong every year as debt kept going, getting cheaper and cheaper. Mm-hmm. We would have done a little bit better if we put on the variable rate loans. We don't obviously want to go back and do that, but um, that would have definitely increased our returns. Um, then we would have been caught at a very difficult time right now. So Kind of, kind of hard to say, but really that debt is so important to our business. You don't want to lever either, so we try to keep our leverage in the fifty to sixty percent range. That allows for the revenues at the property to decrease at a very high level before there's break-even cash flow, and
1: really, really protects the deals. Yeah, and so when you say, "Hey, we want we want to stay closer to fifty percent um, levered." Is that because your DSCR constraint or, or you're saying the lender is willing to give you more proceeds on that loan, but you guys are going to bring in more equity just, just to have the safety net?
0: Mostly the safety net, but we also want interest only, which is going to get you a little bit less proceeds. The interest only helps increase the cash flow and it also helps decrease the interest expense, which also helps with uh, protecting against some of that downside if something happens in the market. So we are going for certain loans that will maximize cash flow and keep us well protected. But yeah, we, typically we could get a little bit more proceeds, but a lot of times we're maxed out as well.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, two years ago when the cap rates were on top of each other, which we alluded to earlier in, in the show, um, it made a lot of sense to buy the class A stuff, especially with all the organic rent growth and all the inflation that we were seeing. Um, now, it, it almost seems like we're in a de- deflationary environment. Um, you could argue a lot of money is being sucked out of the, uh, the economy. Um, and we're in a high interest rate environment. And so given, given the fundamentals right now, and we're in a softening climate with pricing and cap rates are going up, does it make as much sense today to buy the Class A stuff as it did three years ago? Hey guys, real quick, the only way this show grows, the only way we continue to bring on bigger and better guests is if you guys rate, review, and share the show. So if you could take two seconds or the click of the thumb to review on Apple or Spotify, it will mean the world to me. But more importantly, we'll be able to reach more entrepreneurs and more real estate investors and help them build wealth through this podcast. Now back to the show. We do think so.
0: And it, it's going to be very deal specific, you know, depending on which kind of pricing you're seeing and which market you're in we tend to stay away from urban cores where there's a lot of new development and people mm-hmm. can go very, very vertical and build tons and tons of units. So we're kind of in suburban markets, less new supply, tends to um, have our rents grow at a faster pace. But it would be very, very difficult to make a value-add deal pencil today because with rent softening, the market softening, it's hard to improve units to increase rents when the market is softening. So it almost makes a little bit more sense to buy the newer, nicer deals, but just in submarkets markets
1: with not a lot of new development. Interesting. Okay. Because um, it's always a fine line. It's like, you know, what do you, obviously when, when times are good, you can feel very confident about the rent growth that you're going to get. Um, but in times like this where you know we're, we're seeing a lot of flat, flat rent growth and, and maybe in some markets we're seeing declining rent growth, how are you guys choosing to underwrite um, your rent growth? What are you guys assuming? And that brings us back to our 10-year strategy a little bit. So
0: always focusing on the 10-year time horizon and then looking back at historical averages, we put in about a 35 to 4% average rent growth per year over a 10-year period. There's going to be some negative years, some flat years, some positive years. But if you put in that three and a half to 4% average rent growth, you are most likely going to be very accurate on your underwriting to hopefully light, light, even conservative. You know, Over this last 10 to 12 years, which has been one of the best cycles we've ever seen, rent growth averaged close to 6% per year. So with the three and a half to 4% that we're putting in our pro formas, there is going to be some slower years, but there's going to be some good years too. And what we've noticed is the new construction starts have come to a halt. Mm-hmm. And so that means starting in 2026, there's going to be very, very little new product being delivered. And that means 27, 28, 29 should be really
1: strong rent growth years. Talk a little bit about the um, the new construction right now. And, and, and would you say this is primarily a function? The, I'm talking about the slowdown in new construction is primarily a function of the rate right environment and the, the uncertainty in the marketplace? It's, it's a function of a few different things. First of all, construction costs have
0: gone absolutely crazy. So it is very, very expensive to build today. In construction costs, there's construction loans, which have also gotten very expensive and really, really hard to get. And then there's less land since there's been a lot of developments, And um, we're just seeing a lot of comps out there that aren't justifying the new construction. So they're not getting the rents that they wanted. We're buying two deals right now, one in Denver, one in Phoenix. Both are $300,000 a unit for brand new properties that were built one to two years ago. And that's below replacement costs. So when a developer sees those comps, they... Say we can't go build for three fifty four hundred a unit if people are buying new product for three hundred, yeah. we're not going to be able to sell it. So then that halts the new development, and that's why in a couple of years there's going to be very very little new starts.
1: Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. We just had a deal come down our pipeline, and the boutique hotel side is one of our um, our bridge lenders that we have a good relationship with. They were down here touring a property on Friday. And we caught wind that they're foreclosing on a new construction deal that they're taking back from the developer. Um, And so we're going to pick this up for 136 a door, brand new construction uh, up in Northern California, up in Washington, up in the Pacific Northwest. And so I thought, man, I'm like, I don't know if you could rebuild this for that same cost, you know, based on, you know, to go back to what you were just saying.
0: I think that's a very important metric for any real estate business. If you're buying something at below replacement cost, then over the long term, you're going to have a, a good buy if you obviously also looked at location and operations
1: and a few other things, too. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, uh, you know, moving forward, um, obviously, you know, you, you forecasted the interest rate environment and the cap rate environment. Are you surprised? Because I know you guys have been in this industry for since the early 90s. Are you surprised by the amount of demand that is in multifamily today, but also over the last 10 years? Because I imagine back in the 90s, the amount of demand that we see or we've seen over the last 10 years was not the same in the 90s. Are you surprised by all this new demand?
0: Yeah, there's, there's, when you, when you mention demand, there's a few different types of demand. And we have seen tons and tons of renters. So home prices have gotten really expensive. And obviously, we've talked about interest rates many times, which have gone up so much too. So it's extremely hard to get into the home ownership world today. And that is leading to a lot more renting. And also, just people are more used to it. It's easier to move. They're not sure where they want to be. So we've seen a big, big trend to more renters. And I think that's going to really be a tailwind for us going forward. And then also, um, on the demand for Real estate investing. There's just a lot more um, with the internet and people talking about what they invest in and different podcasts, podcasts and everything. Like yeah, this. exactly. Just <laughs> like it. people are learning that mm-hmm. real estate is a real investment asset class that I should have in my portfolio. So we've seen a big growth in our investors in our business as well. Um, and we get, we do all our investors kind of word of mouth referrals and we get multiple referrals every
1: week. Yeah. And speaking of that, so, you know, in order for you guys to really, you know, buy all these assets, I always, always say like to build a sizable portfolio, you need two things. You need deal development and you need capital development. So on the capital development side, um, talk about what that kind of looks like investor wise and all that sort of thing. Because I imagine to to build the portfolio that you guys have 28,000 units. Um, you guys, one, have took really good care of your investors thus far, and you guys have a ton of investors. So talk a little bit about that arm of the business. So our business was founded by my father in
0: 92. And the first deal was a 38-unit deal up in Vista. It had four partners in it, both my grandparents and my dad's two friends. Did very well, and we started doing more and more deals in San Diego. We did about 50 deals in San Diego over the first 10 years. And the the word of mouth when people tell their friends and family about something that they're very happy and and passionate about, grows very quickly. So now, 32 years later, we've got 2,400 partners. We raise somewhere between 400 and 800 million a year, and we're usually doing somewhere between a billion and two billion in
1: property acquisitions every year. Yeah. Um, What are some questions that any limited partner or new investor, um, when they're deciding whether they should invest with a new operator, should be asking? Some of the biggest things that we've seen over the years, and
0: we've people send us packages from all different companies, and we hear stories from other groups that they've been very happy with and other groups that they've not been happy with. And really, um, some of the main things are company track record, being through different cycles, being an expert in what they do, doing it many times, having skin in the game is really important. as a personal rule at our company, um, our family never has less than 10%. Of any deal. And we have on average 20% of the portfolio, which really makes us focus on each deal just, just like it's any of our investors' capital. And also that vertical integration, the in-house property management, asset mm-hmm. management, property management's been so important in the downturns in saving on expenses, on knowing which properties to purchase, and those are three things that I would look for in any sponsor and in any investment.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think uh, having some skin in the game creates the alignment of interest. Um, but also, you mentioned um, being vertically integrated in having that property management company. One, it gives you full control. Um, but two, you know, if you have um, you know all these deals and and you're 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 raising money from investors and all that. Um, you know, I think the property management arm is, is one of the most important arms that determines the success of that project. Um, I was re- interviewing Robert Martinez. He was the one that just foreclosed on that $51 million note. I asked him, I said, well, what, was, what was the biggest problem there? And he said, the biggest issue was right when they closed on that deal, they were fully integrated. They had in-house property management. And that was really their competitive advantage all these years. And he said right before they closed on a deal, they went to third party. And he said when they went to third party, a lot of their deals, occupancy took a dive. Um, a lot of their expense ratios took a dive. Um, a lot of their uh, renewals took a dive. And uh, because of that, this particular deal, um, obviously it had some other issues with it. But the main driver of why the, this deal got foreclosed on was they went third party. And so that is, that is something to, uh, there's something to be said about that. Yeah, no, that property
0: management is in, invaluable. I mean, when, when uh, the, something changes in the market, we can pivot really quickly, put the right people in the right places. Also just having that knowledge of which properties are performing best so we can know which submarkets to focus on. When deals come for sale, we can really know what the expenses are, what kind of concessions there's going to be, what the rents are going to do. And um, it's been
1: uh, extremely important for, for our business model. Would you say out of all the aspects of your, your business, you guys have multiple arms, right? You got the deal development, um, which is, you know, finding the deals, getting them underwritten, uh, broker relations. Um, and then you got your capital development, which is all investor relations and, you know, bringing in capital to fund these deals. But then you have the property management arm, right? The operations um, would you say that the property management arm is the most workload intensive out of those three? By far,
0: yeah. So of the 880 employees we have, I would say 800 or 750 are in the field at the properties doing the daily maintenance management and really boots on the ground. And so with 28,000 units, we've got 100,000 residents. And that is a lot of things that can go right. It's a lot of things that can go wrong. Work orders. Um, people moving out, different projects. Value. So yeah, that, that is by far the most labor intensive.
1: Wow. So you said 750 boots on the ground. Um, I would have guessed it would have been a much larger number amongst the 28,000 units.
0: Yeah. In general, in the multifamily space for every a hundred units you have at a property, you need one inside yeah. the office, one, one outside. Yeah. So on a 300 unit property, you're going to have six full-time employees there. And, um, yeah, Some need a little bit more depending on the area. Some need a little bit less. But that's a general rule. Mm-hmm. And so that comes out to that 750 yeah.
1: One in, one out. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, now, here in California, um, I don't know if it's a California thing or, or more of a San Diego thing. Um, I've never owned larger multifamily here. But is it true that you need uh, an on-site manager here for like X amount of anything that's over a certain unit count? Yeah, you what is do that? Um,
0: it's pretty small, nothing that we've looked at for many, many years. So I don't know the exact number. I think it's in the
1: 10 to 20 unit range. Yeah, how does that make sense though from an economies of scale standpoint? Is there, is there like a loophole around that? I think you can have a semi-employee,
0: just someone that maybe checks on a few things, not mm-hmm. a full employee for the smaller properties.
1: Okay. But um, Or maybe like one of your tenants, you give them a little kickback. Yeah, like, little ex- kick back for yeah
0: like- I think that's what's going on. Yeah, we, we haven't played in that arena Sure, for a long time. But yeah, and I do know that you do have to have some type of on-site employee for a yeah. certain amount of
1: units. Um, what, are, what are some of the, the major value-add components that you guys you like to utilize in your business plans, especially when you target the older stuff, the 10 to 30-year-old product? Um, what are some uh, value-add strategies that you guys like to implement first, like rubs, um, that sort of thing?
0: We like to look at the leasing path first. So we want to do paint, signage, anything that's going to be on a leasing walkway. So we can do clubhouse, gym, pool, any amenities. Really want to bring it up to the top level. So that will help compete against the newer product that's getting the highest rents. And then on the interiors, we're doing floors, cabinets, hard surfaces, lighting package, fixture fixture package. So um, we wouldn't move anyone out per month but, on normal turnover, we can get eight to ten renovations per month, which takes a few years to do all of them at one of our properties. But we are doing many, many value add projects on
1: on tons of deals in different markets. So if you pick up a product uh, a property, um, are you guys you know, in terms of the comp set in identifying what you want to turn this property into, what's the best way to identify that? I mean, are you guys you know, turning a a, a C plus into a B plus. Talk a little bit about that and how do you identify what you should turn your property into?
0: On average, we're doing B minus to B plus. So we're trying to find B locations, B to B minus properties, and we're trying to bring them up to B plus, A minus. It's not going to get the top rents of the brand new property that was just built with the best amenities, but we want to be pretty close and an affordable option to that property. So that's been a, a very good um Plan for us so far and, and um, when the value add opportunities are back in the market, the market stabilizes, there's definitely going
1: to be some opportunities to, to find that kind of B minus to B plus. So for that product that you're talking about, where you're taking it from a B minus to a B plus, are you guys going appliances black to stainless and countertops? Or are you guys going from Formica to granite? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then you mentioned the wet area. Are you doing the wet areas LVP? Or are you doing the entire floor plan, LBP? We are. We will do
0: anything that's going to help us compete with the competition, and a lot. Of, there's a lot of things you can do for not a lot of money that make a big difference, like cabanas at the pool, just some better um, you said, furniture. Oh, cabanas at the pool. Yeah, okay. yeah, better furniture in the clubhouse, um, but really having that really nice feel when a resident comes up and is about to tour. And also having that good service, which you can do with your own property management company, good leasing, good following
1: up, just blocking and tackling. What are some tips to improve the exterior that might be um, a big lever, but not for a ton of capital? Paint's always the
0: biggest one. It makes such a big difference. Landscape second. So if you paint and landscape a property, you can really change an 80s built property to make it feel like a 90s or
1: 2000s. Okay what about um, like signage like new signage and, and maybe some some new lighting up lighting and stuff like that?
0: yeah, on a lot of new properties or I mean on a lot of properties that we're doing value add they're maybe built in the 80s or 90s or 2000s we can do a full rebranding so rename the property new signs, get a new reputation going because they've usually been managed by third party managers and that that keep rotating in and out and they maybe don't have the best um, reviews online which are very, very important these days and so
1: Going in, doing a big rebranding, signage, and everything has been very successful for us. If you guys inherit a property that has great reviews online, will you guys keep the branding? We will. You will. Yeah. Um, Now, when you rebrand the property, you're starting over with zero reviews. And then in terms of SEO and like Google search rankings, you're going to be non-existent when you rebrand. How do you guys take it from non-existent SEO and zero reviews to try to make a splash in the marketplace under this new brand?
0: We have a full marketing team, full-time in our office. Someone's just focused on SEO. One's just focused on marketing. One's focused at the properties. One's focused online. So really it's a having a great marketing team and just getting
1: everything um, set online. So are these, you're saying at the at the property level, you guys will have one staff member at each property that that's their, key, that's their key role is just the marketing for that property specifically in our corporate office okay
0: we have full time individuals that focus over the whole portfolio
1: gotcha no that's interesting because you know we, we do the same thing with the hotels um, you know a lot of the hotels we're buying are underperforming right and so the reason they're underperforming is because they have bad reviews um, and so and then obviously we're doing these big renovations and so for us we're always rebranding um and so it makes a lot of sense, but I mean, I know starting over fresh is, is huge. You know, we were actually touring a, a this is actually a, a deal that, uh, Jaden is, is negotiating, but is a deal up North and the, uh, we went to go tour on Monday and this is a, uh, smaller boutique hotel, 44 units in the front desk. She's like, you know, we're basically going up there The the broker and the seller doesn't want the staff to know that it's being sold and so they said hey just pretend like you're a guest you're interested in blocking off a group of uh, rooms and you want to tour some of the rooms and so we we approached the front desk lady and she literally like turned us away she just said hey like you know we don't do groups of rooms um so go try the, the hotel next door which is their competition so you know a, a hotel that has 22% occupancy severely underperforming um she's sending people to the hotel next door and so that's one of the reasons why their occupancy is so low in the cellar is terrified to let this, this lady go.
0: Yeah. It's it's just basic blocking and tackling.
1: Yeah. If you just do the basics
0: at the property, you're going to be ahead of, of almost all your competition. And then if you can go
1: above and beyond, you're going to outperform. Yeah. Um, what about like, let's say replacing HVAC units, um, and you know, sealing and striping parking lots and that sort of thing. Do you guys, like if you have to replace, let's say 60, 70% of the HVAC units and the rest have a few years left, do you guys just replace them all?
0: No, we'll, we'll keep them all until they're completely Until they're shot? Used. Yeah. So we have a full construction management team, about 25 professionals that are managing the whole portfolio and looking at every piece of every building. And we actually have a full due diligence team as well. So when we buy a new property, we go through every system, every unit third-party reports,
1: make sure that everything is set for our entire 7- to 10-year hold. What do you guys do if there's a handful of units that you could not get into for whatever reason? Do you guys go back and, and, and you won't move forward with the PSA until you can get into all the units? Or will you overlook them if there's just a few?
0: Um, Hasn't happened too much. So at our property level, if you give a 48-hour notice, you can get into any unit. If for some reason we can't, then we'll, we'll go back and check it out and just make sure that it has the refrigerator and the basics and just check some of the piping and just do a couple checklists. So we will go back, but we we haven't had that issue too much.
1: Yeah. Um, what about when it comes time to, you know, renovate these units? Are you guys typically always renovating all the units or are you guys doing a percentage of them? Um, I know you mentioned you guys are doing seven to 10 year holds. Um, what does that look like for you guys?
0: Most of the time, we're doing all of them. It does take a long time, as I mentioned, because we're doing eight to 10 per month and our average is 270 units, so it takes a few years. But over the few-year period, we tend to renovate all of the properties or all of the units
1: at our value-add properties. Do you guys ever buy properties that are like being marketed as a proven value-add to where the uh, prior ownership came in, renovated, let's say, 20% of the units, prove the rent increases, and then now they're marketing it as a proven value add. Do you guys ever pick up any of that stuff?
0: Yeah, yeah. And especially in this last cycle when rents were going you know, like crazy, people were proving some really, really big rent increases. We weren't typically doing the exact same scope that the people before us were doing. We have kind of our own scope since we do so many per year, mm-hmm. but we would go in and continue the rest of the units.
1: Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And then what about with the exit? You know, Because like you said, um, you never know when you're going to exit um, obviously you can you can have conservative projections and you can have an idea of what the exit's going to look like but obviously you know the cap rate environment um, and the amount of, of of buyer demand out there is going to dictate a lot of that um, how do you guys determine you know once you're in a deal you renovate all the units you see it's performing how do you guys determine the best time to exit and what that exit looks like
0: we do a meeting every quarter called our quarterly investment management meeting where we go through every property, look at all the metrics of the property, what cap rates are trading in that sub market, how the property is performing. But in general, we try to stick with our original business plan and we try to time the debt to the original business plan. When you say time the debt, what do you mean? If it's a seven year hold, we'll get seven year debt, 10 year hold, we'll get 10 year debt. So most of the time we are holding for that full seven to 10 years Earlier, we talked about prepayment penalties. And since we're doing the fixed rate financing, there are large prepayment penalties if we were to sell early. And we do not want to pay prepayment penalties. We have not in the past. So we tend to hold to the end. Since the interest rates have gone up, it's actually been the opposite. Even on some deals, you might get paid to sell early because they could deploy that money at a higher rate. So depending on the market, Sometimes their prepayment penalties are big. Sometimes they're small. We just kind of analyze on a quarterly
1: basis. Mm-hmm. Are there any um, tax, uh, let's say, tax advantages, such as a 1031, um, You know, when you guys go to exit, let's say, some of these larger deals, where there's going to be a ton of sale proceeds and um, a lot of capital gains that, that comes due? Um, because a 1031, uh, with a lot of these syndications, traditionally is an all-or-nothing act. Do you guys typically try to line up another deal for your investors to roll their money into?
0: Yeah, it's a very good question. And, and we've been doing 1031 exchanges for the full 30 years of our, our business. And every time we sell a deal, we offer a 1031 exchange for our partners. It is optional, so they can roll forward with us to the next deal or not. Most tend to do it just because it's such a powerful wealth building tool. And that 1031 exchange allows you to defer your taxes and also defer the recapture from the depreciation, which has saved you from has deferred all your cash flow as well. So um, you can have an
1: investment with all deferred taxes. Gotcha. And so uh, with that, and so you said it's optional. Some investors can participate in the upleg and some might not. Um, How does that work from the 1031 basis um, if, if some are rolling in and some are not? As a limited partner, your interest is transferable. So you can sell
0: it. There's not really a market for it, but we can sell whoever wants to get out at the exchange. We can sell their interest to someone else. So we just replace them. And it's been such a low percentage of people in the past that it's really very simple.
1: Gotcha. Okay, so that's basically the, the, the loophole around this all or nothing idea with the 1031 exchange. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. Yeah, so
0: I guess you know, if you're following the, the the code, which obviously you are, of course, you do have to exchange the full amount,
1: but mm-hmm. you can you can exchange someone's interest to someone else at any time, and mm-hmm. you can do it at the sale too. That's interesting. I haven't heard of that before. That I have to look into that. I've done um, I've done like ten thirty one before. Where we set up a tick tenants in common, but this was a JV deal mm-hmm. on a sale of a multifamily deal. This was not with limited partners or anything like that. And so our legal counsel set up a tick tenants in common, and so it allowed the partners to individually 1031 into their own uplegs, and not so much of the all or nothing thing. But with the limited partners, I have not heard of that before. I have to look into that. That's um, that's huge.
0: Yeah, and we've done a lot of the tenant in commons as well, mm-hmm. where people are selling large real estate and they come into our deal as a tenant in common as well. So they have their own tenant mm-hmm. in common in the deal because there's so much extra time and fees that go into creating the tenant in common we have a higher minimum it's a three million dollar minimum so it tends to be large commercial properties while our normal limited
1: partnership uh, minimum is a hundred thousand gotcha okay that makes a lot of sense so uh, just just to recap what you just said there if you have a new investor or a return investor that that is uh, rolling some proceeds from one of their individual deals or maybe it could be proceeds from another um, uh, sponsorship. And they, they can 1031 their proceeds into one of your opportunities and defer their taxes on that. And they can t- technically exchange into it.
0: They would have to be in a tenant in common structure. So they would really have to have sold their own piece of real estate. And because we have that higher minimum, it tends
1: to typically be large commercial properties. Mm-hmm. Okay. That makes a lot of sense, man. That's interesting stuff. Um, what would you say right now to a new multifamily investor uh, in this climate that we're in? Uh, we're in the high interest rate environment, um, and let's say they got some some money saved up and they want to buy their first deal. Uh, what kind of advice would you give them?
0: Our philosophy is not to try to time the market. It's to focus on the real estate and to buy deals that are going to outperform other investments at that time. So we think that right now is a great time to get in the market. We wish there was more deals for sale, but we would... We would say that buying well-located, well-built multifamily is going to outperform other investment opportunities at this time, even not including the tax advantages. But then you have a lot of tax advantages on top of the investment as well. So
1: we are just trying to pick off every year the best deals we can find. If you could go back and tell your 25-year-old self one piece of advice, what would it be? That's a very good question.
0: It would be focus on the people that you work with and surround yourself with people that will help grow your business. So on our, on our senior management team, we have a very, very long track record of uh, great people we work with. And it's been a huge key to our success in our business. Um, We have our COO, CIO, um, our uh, CFO and head of construction been with us for 15 plus years and really we work together so well, so, so valuable who you surround yourself
1: with. I love that. Yeah. I would say, um, who you surround yourself with really is the biggest lever and driver, um, in, in terms of who you become. And, um, I'm just a big believer in that. And I think sometimes that means you have to cut, um, certain people out of your life and it doesn't need need to be forever. Um, maybe it's just for a little bit, but you know, without change, There'll be no growth. Jeff, it's been a pleasure, man. It's been an honor um, interviewing you. And, and I'm just so inspired by everything that you're doing on the multifamily side. So thank you so much for taking the time today. Really appreciate you having me on. Great to see you and uh, look forward to catching up again soon. Appreciate it, man. He's Jeff Gleberman. I'm Rich Summers. Listeners, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you in the next one. Peace.